You are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. If you're new here, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here at Refuge. Uh, Refuge is a church plant in Southeast Austin, serving South Austin and Austin at large. If you want to know more about us, I encourage you to jump into uh, the video description, hit that connect link, connect with us. We'd love to know how we could pray for you and serve you during this time, in addition to sharing a little bit more about who we are and what we're doing. Uh, Man, I'm also excited today because today we're working through Acts chapter 7. We're working through the whole chapter, so uh, it's going to be a lot. So so I want you to try to keep up because we're going to work pretty quick. Uh, and I'm geeked out because it's a it's a, a really history-packed chapter. And if you know me, then you know that I love history, man. I'm a big history fan. I just enjoy it so much uh, because history is valuable, man. It teaches us so much. When we understand history, we're, we're able to you know navigate with more wisdom our current scenarios and situations. You know, you've heard the the, the saying, uh, if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. That type of thing, man. History is valuable to us. It is valuable to us. And um, I would even go so far to say that when we understand history, not just knowing the facts, when we begin to understand it in depth, the emotions behind it, the stories behind it, it becomes redemptive. It begins to show us value where we didn't see value before. Uh, I have, you know, my my mind, there's there's a lot of examples. One stands out, a book called 1491 by Charles Mann. Uh, And it's a book that really uncovers the great history of, uh, of, of pre-Columbian um, Mesoamerican Indians, right? Native Americans from here in the Americas before the Europeans found um, the Americas. And what it shows is that there's so much beauty and culture and science and dignity and honor that's worthy of respect, right? When we begin to understand the story, the history, what's behind it, we begin to get a better understanding of how much respect these people deserved. And as a result, that's what I mean, right? By, by understanding history can be redemptive. It can increase the value of something uh, as we learn about it. Today, uh, Stephen, uh, an early church leader, is going to kind of provide us a bit of a, a re-envisioning of the history of Israel. And what he's going to do is, is similar to Charles Mann in 1491. He's going to actually elevate the value of some things uh, in the light to, to the religious leaders that he's talking to, and he's going to decrease the value of other things. And, and that's critical for us, man, because I, I want us to, to see today that as we begin to understand history, specifically our story, how our story interacts and converges with God's story of redemption and restoration, that it begins to show us the value of our story, that you have a story. You have a story that is marked by grace and forgiveness and mercy if you're a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, I want you to know that you also have a story that's marked by grace, by common grace, by by mercy that that God has allowed you to, to make it through life and be here and share this time with us. And so either way, right, we see as we understand our own story uh, that, man, there is, there is value to our story, that God is doing something in our story, and that really uh, the climax of that value is when our story intersects his story, okay? And so what we're going to do is we're going to start working through Acts chapter 7, okay? And we're going to see that, that 
Stephen is going to show us that when, our, when we misunderstand uh, history, it oftentimes stops us from understanding our story and what God is doing. And so to help us there, what I want to try to do is I want to invite uh, us to, to, to gleam three kind of takeaways, almost three tools. I want us to add these three tools to our tool belt because these takeaways are less meant to be like direct applications. And what they're meant to do is actually allow us to take these tools, look at our story and begin to see how valuable, how beautiful it is to begin to see the marks of grace, the marks of mercy, affection and love in our story. And I believe that Stephen is going to give us some tools to do that well. And so I want to go ahead and jump in, but I want to first give us those three points, those three takeaways to to kind of prepare us. And those three takeaways are these, that one, as we navigate and interpret our own stories, as we navigate our history, we have to, one, remember the true gift. Okay, we have to remember the true gift. Two, we have to remember how we get that gift. How did we get that gift back then? Or how do we get it now? And three, we have to remember where the gift is. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and dive in and start with our first takeaway, which is remember the true gift. And we're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 7, and we're going to work all the way to the end. In this first section, we're going to read through verse 36, but I am going to let you know we're going to skip verses here and there. Not because they're not important, but because they just add detail to the main points we're covering. So don't freak out, but I'll let you know when we're going to jump ahead. So starting in Acts chapter uh, 7, verse 1. Uh, it, it starts here. It says, verse 1, Are these things true? The high priest asked. Brothers and fathers, he replied, Listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran and said to him, Leave your country and relatives and come to the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had, had him moved to this land in which you are now living. He didn't give him an inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, but he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him, even though he was childless. God spoke in this way. His descendants would be strangers in a foreign country, and they would enslave and oppress them for 400 years. We're going to go ahead and skip to verse 9. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his troubles. He gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over his whole household. Now we're going to jump to 17. At this time, he was approaching, as the time was approaching to fulfill the promise that God had made to Abraham, the people flourished and multiplied in Egypt until a different king who did not know Joseph ruled over Egypt. He dealt deceitfully with our race and oppressed our ancestors by making them abandon their infants outside so that they wouldn't survive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was cared for in his father's home for three months. After 40 years, oh, sorry, we're jumping to verse 30 now, okay? We're going to go ahead and finish up here. Uh, At 40 years, after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he was approaching to look at it, the voice of the Lord came. I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Moses began to tremble and did not dare to look. 
The Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet because the place where you are standing is holy ground. If you have certain, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected when they said, who appointed you a ruler and a judge? This one God sent as a ruler and a deliverer through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out and performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. So what's happening here? There's a lot of text, and I want to try to summarize it as best as we can, but first a little bit of context, okay? What, what's happening here is that uh, Stephen is responding to a, a kind of like a congressional hearing. Uh, people had, be, had, had uh, born, I guess, taught, like, like given false witness about Stephen and said that he was saying that he was going to tear down the temple and overthrow the customs of Moses, which he hadn't said. And so they brought him before the Sanhedrin, which was, again, like Congress back in the day for the ancient Israelites. And he was kind of before them answering uh, questions about these accusations. And rather than just refute them and go, no, I didn't say that, he's going to do something really loving. He's actually going to go ahead and go back and, and really bring out the whole story of Israel and present it to the Sanhedrin, to the religious leaders. He's going to preach a beautiful sermon. And as we know, the preaching of the word in the, in, in the scriptures, especially here in Acts, as we can see, is never meant to curse people. Rather, it's meant to bring them life. It's meant to redeem and restore them. And so what Stephen's goal is of this, I truly do deeply believe, is that he would actually tell them and show them where they've missed the mark, how they've got it wrong, and then show them how they can get on the right track by revealing the mistakes that have been seen in how they interpret their own story. Oftentimes, we likewise can get off track when we don't interpret our own story well, and this is where I think it can be really valuable for us. And so he starts this first section uh, by, by tackling a real big source of ethnic and almost religious, not just pride, but arrogance, idolatry even. The first thing he's going to tackle is the land that Israel calls its home, the land of, of Jerusalem, the nation of Israel. In verse 4, he starts by saying, Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had, God had him moved to this land in which you are now living. This is critical, and this is important for us to pick up on. Because one of the major sources that, that these religious leaders pointed to as evidence of God's goodness and God's favor and approval in their life was where they were living, the land of Israel. They had been bounced back and forth as a people there for thousands of years. I mean, they had gone through exiles. And they had struggled to get it in the first place. And, and they felt like it was a promise from God. In fact, it was a promise from God. It's called the promised land. And so they had banked so much on that being uh, the... the guarantee the evidence of God's goodness that living there alone caused many religious leaders to look at their lives and go, look, man, we're good, right? I mean, we have everything we need. We're in the promised land. God must be happy with us. And so to confront this idea, Stephen does something really unique and really cool. He goes back through their history and points at three key figures, Abraham, Joseph, and Moses, and shows them, look, man, they weren't in the promised land. Look at Abraham. He left the promised land, and, and the land that he was promised, right, this idea of this new home that God was creating, he didn't give him an inheritance in it at all. It's not at that time. And the promise that his children, his descendants, were going to be, like, call this home and all this stuff, like, 
He was hearing that and had to go by faith because he didn't even have kids at that time. Think about Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt by his family, by his own brothers. Man, and while he was in slavery, he got sent to prison. He had a hard road there, yet the scriptures tell us that God was with him, working in him, and in fact delivered him at the end of it and put him in the highest role in Egypt. Think about Moses, that Moses delivered the people Man, that he, he, he performed miracles in, in Egypt, at the Red Sea, in the wilderness, yet he, he never got to see the promised land. He died in the wilderness. But none of these men that you look at, none of us could look at them and be like, they lacked God's goodness. They lacked God's favor. But they didn't have the land that God had kind of like, not, not promised, but that, that you cling to as the evidence of God's goodness. So where's the disconnect here? You see, what he was pointing at is that, man, you, you have to be careful not to confuse the benefits and the blessing. The benefits of the blessing is one thing. But when we confuse the benefits for the blessing, right, when we believe that the blessing of a good God is second to the benefits that come with the blessing of having a good God, then all of a sudden we miss the mark because the things that we look at to create value, dignity, that we see as making our story valuable are all the things that are easily taken away. Right, like they were looking and saying, man, I, I, I can put my dependence and trust in this land to show me that I have value and that God is good. Yet Stephen is telling them, no, no, you can't do that. Because the thing that they were clinging to was not the promise of this land, but the promise, the promise keeper, God himself. He was the good gift. He was the true gift. To miss that is to miss everything. And our own story, in, in, as we navigate our own stories, this is a pitfall that we have to be aware of, friends. To know that as we navigate our own story, our own history, it's easy for all of us to believe that the only thing that gives us value are the benefits. What gives our story promise and value and dignity and worth is when we're able to look and go, look, but I have a nice car, a nice house, a career, influence, honor, respect, a family, a relationship, a good marriage, a this, a that, a golden retriever, and a shih tzu too, right? Like, like, that's how we begin to see, oh, this is how my story has value. Yet what, what Stephen is showing us is, man, you can be lost in the wilderness without the promised land and still be blessed because you have the true gift. That true gift is God. Isn't it beautiful to think that your story isn't less valuable because you're not where you're, you want to be career-wise? Your story is not less beautiful because you don't have the perfect relationship you think you should have because your kids are wild or because your marriage has ups and downs. That doesn't make your story less beautiful. The thing that makes your story beautiful is that it's marked by the true gift, which is the presence of God in your story. And so he brings to the forefront this reality that, man, you've trusted in this land to be the thing that brings worth, the thing that brings pride, yet you have missed the mark because you've neglected the true gift, which is the gift of God himself. But that's not where the, the pitfalls stop. That's not where the danger ends. Because even if they were to say, oh, cool, I get that, I understand that, the question remains, how do I now get that gift? And this is the next pitfall that, that they fell into, that the religious leaders fell into, but that we can easily fall into when we begin to navigate and look at our own story as well. And, and the takeaway that Stephen wants to give us is this, that we have to remember how we got that gift. We have to remember how we got that gift. 
We're going to pick up in verse 37 here. And it says, This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. He is the one who was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. He received living oracles to give to us. Our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. Instead, they pushed him aside and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. They even made a calf in those days, offered sacrifice to the idol, and were celebrating what their hands had made. God turned away and gave them up to worship the stars of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, House of Israel, did you bring me offerings and sacrifices for 40 years in the wilderness? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphan. Raphan the images that you made to worship. So I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Here, Stephen is actually going to move on to a, a, another uh, sense of, of really ethnic and religious arrogance that's so rooted in the religious leaders, and that's the law, of the law of Moses. The law of Moses was, was the, set, the set of rules that were given to them by Moses, right? The first ones being the Ten Commandments when he was on Mount Sinai in Exodus. Now, now there's a reason that he starts, Stephen starts there, because he wants to point to, you remember, you remember the law. Think about the law. Think about how you see the law, religious leaders. The way you see it is this, this history, this heritage of having the ways of God, that we as a people have the oracles of God, that we have uh, the teachings of God, the commands of God, the good, the good directions of God, and, and we take pride in it as though it by itself is a badge of honor. Yet when we look at the history of our people corporately, they never finished it. They never like honored it and obeyed it. They're marked actually by idolatry. And the thing is, in your life, you have a deep sense of pride because you think that, that your own obedience to these religious laws is actually the thing that's going to gain you affirmation before God. But it's not. And what he's showing us is that the second temptation to how we, we look at our own stories is this, that we would begin to contort, to, to, to really make ugly the good gift of God's commands and distort it into this, this thing that we use to prove our worth before God. And think about what that looks like. And this plays into a lot of stuff because when you think about that, it, it looks like us going, okay, now if, if I've done this, if I've done that, then that means God can't possibly justify how he does X, Y, and Z to me. Right, right? Like, like this is the root of a lot of, of how we come to God. We come to him either full of pride, saying like, how could you let this happen to me? Or we come to him uh, full of shame and embarrassment, thinking like, gosh, I failed you. When the reality that, that Stephen is pointing to is not uh, that this is the thing that we depend on, but rather, this is, if we're going to depend on this, then we failed. Because the religious leaders from back in the day, man, they were all worshiping while Moses was gone. Aaron himself built the calf. But now, even here in this context, it's not like they're, they're free from idolatry. They, they've missed the mark. They have relied on the law in order to try to prove themselves to God. When in reality, if this is what we depend on, then we failed. We've again missed the mark. 
Rather, we have to remember how we got the good gift in the first place through the grace of Jesus. Okay, you think about something like Romans 3 that says that that God forgave both those who were in the present, that Jesus, through his blood, forgave those who were in the present, who were coming, and in the past, so that he could be the just and justifier uh, of those who he calls his own. This idea being that even back in these days, those who would receive forgiveness were receiving forgiveness because of Jesus now, here. That we're receiving forgiveness because of him back there. All of this is a work of God's grace in our lives. Man, like, like you have access to the gift of God reconciling you to himself, loving you, affirming you, making our stories beautiful. We have access to this gift because God has died in our place, in Jesus, allowing our uh, redemption and forgiveness. Like, like man, we, it, it's, it's this beautiful story of God's grace and mercy in our lives going, you know what, man, where you have failed, I will take up and I, I'll make you whole. Where, where you have struggled, where your mistakes are, Man, don't worry about that. I've taken that on the cross. It's this grace that Stephen is pointing them to and going, man, none of this buys us a ticket to the gift. None of this this gets us closer to God. And if you think it does, man, you're going to come to God with anger, with pride, with shame and guilt, rather than coming to him with the fullness of the love, affection, and peace that he desires to give you. And so what Stephen wants us to see, what Stephen wants them to see, is that as we navigate our own story and we start to build this sense of identity, one of the pitfalls we have to be aware of is the temptation to go, all right, man, well, I guess this really gives me credit. This gives me credit rather than going, thank you, God, for the grace of giving me your son. We have to remember how we get that gift through the grace of Jesus, not by ourselves, not because of us, but man, despite us, that God in his goodness would go, no, man, you know what? You keep running away from me. In fact, that's a beautiful part of the text that it says, hey, our ancestors, man, they pushed away the messenger and they took their hearts back to Egypt. I read this week that the calf wasn't just a random animal that was constructed here, but rather the calf was one of the prominent figures of idol worship in Egypt. And so them even making a calf uh, to worship was the, the outward expression of saying, my heart is back in the old ways. How many of us even can relate to that? That we've seen God's redemption in our life, but there's that part of our heart that's like, man, but, but that seems really good too. The old stuff seems good too. And when our hearts and then eventually our actions slip back into that, we go back to that old way. And then when we come back, we come back with this, this sense of guilt and, and this sense of downtroddenness. And, and yes, we've repented, but, but we believe that, that our mistakes are now dictating our position before God. All while Stephen is saying, remember how you get the good gift. It wasn't about you in the first place, man. It wasn't about you in the first place, sister. It wasn't about you and your performance before God in the first place. It was always about God's goodness. It was never because of us. It was always despite us and because of him. So we have to remember how we get that gift. And as he, he finishes up that idea, right, like helping them see the benefit of the law to show God's character, but not to earn ourselves a place before God, he's now able to, to move on to the last thing he's going to tackle, which is the temple, to help us see, to help us remember where this good gift is. Take a look at verse 44 
As it says, our ancestors had the tabernacle of the testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses commanded him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our ancestors in turn received it and with Joshua brought it in when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before them until the days of David. He, David, found favor in God's sight and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. It was Solomon, rather, who built him a house. But the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what will be my resting place? Did not my hand make all things? Man, one of the last sources I think of, of, uh, of, like I said, that ethnic type of arrogance, that that thing that that the religious leaders were using in order to build a sense of value, identity, purpose, uh, 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 dignity, honor, respect that they were trying to build their life on was the the temple. Right, right. In their mind, there's there's the truth is that there's one God, and He's the ruler of all things. And the religious leaders of the day get to look at their temple and go, and we have him. He lives right there. But what Stephen is saying is, man, remember that, that he said that humans, the, these, these earthly sanctuaries don't hold him. And he was calling into question why Solomon would ever be able to build him a house. Because while we were trying to build him a house, he was building his own house, his people. While you sit here and take this deep pride in your temple, the reality is God is on the move, creating a home for himself in the people of God. If you are a believer in Jesus, if you follow Jesus, man, right now, I want to tell you the good gift of God's presence is not something you have to go find. It's the good gift of God's presence that's already and has been and will be with you. It's already there. He's with you. He's with you. When we come to faith, we have this beautiful moment where God supernaturally indwells us with his spirit. This is what we tackled way back in chapter two, right? This beautiful moment where God no longer is this thing that's far away, but rather God is this personal God who has walked with us through the hardship, has walked with us through the good, has walked with us through the bad, through the mountains and the valleys, the hills and the low points. Man, when we look at our own story and we begin to try to interpret and see the beauty of our story, to see the... the, the, the hope that's in our story, we're able to look and see not just that the good gift of God is the thing that's present, whether we have all the other stuff or whether we don't. Not only are we able to see, oh, you know what, and the way I've gotten that good gift is through the gospel of Jesus, but likewise, man, we're able to look and go, you know what, and and, and the beauty is that every tear I've cried, he's been with me in it. Every hopeless night, he's been right there. Every struggle, he's walked with me through it. If you're a believer in Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, the beauty of this truth is that when you remember where the gift is, you realize that God has never left you. That your story is marked by one fundamental truth that will never cease, and that truth is that he is with you until the end of the age forever. It's this beautiful reminder that as we take a look at our story and we begin to say, what's beautiful about my life? What's beautiful about the story that I'm living? What's beautiful? What's, 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 
What, what's valuable in my life? Where is, is the, the beauty in it? Man, when we rely and depend on ourselves, when the religious leaders depended on, on what they had, how they performed, or, or, or where they worshipped, they were met with the reality that, you know what, you've missed the mark completely. And likewise, when we observe our own life and we look at the things that we have, the way we perform, the where we worship, we miss the mark completely unless we're able to go and say, you know what, the truest gift and mark of the life of beauty that God is making in me, the redemption that's taking place is his presence in my life. Then the, the, the truest beauty and display of his goodness is that it hasn't been because of me that, that, that he has loved me and walked with me. It's been despite of me that he's walked with me and been with me. And the beauty of it is, is even when I have misperformed, when I have failed to live up to what he's called me to, the goodness of God has stuck with me. Even in the moments of my deepest pain, even in the moments of my deepest failure, the gift is here with me. Jesus, God is with me. <clears throat> These are the elements that we have to go in and look at our life through and go, you know what, that's what makes it beautiful. All them failures, all them failures don't make it less beautiful. All mess-ups don't make it less beautiful. Suffering doesn't make it less beautiful. Hardship and heartache don't make it less beautiful. Mistakes don't make it less beautiful. There's only one thing that can make it beautiful, and that is when the presence of God has entered into our life, where we have been reconciled to him, where our heart becomes his and he becomes ours, and we walk in the newness of life purchased by, for us by Christ on the cross. That's what makes life beautiful. It's not a sliding scale. It's zero in one. It's a binary. It's beautiful or not beautiful. And when God has redeemed, reconciled, and made us new, we go from not beautiful to beautiful. We may be marred by mistakes. We may be marred by slip-ups. We may be marred by suffering. We may still encounter the brokenness of the world, but the beauty of the life we have now in Jesus is him looking at us and going, but fear not, because I have overcome the world. All of its brokenness, all of your brokenness, all of the ups, all of the downs, I have made it all new come to me that's the beauty that's what Stephen is trying to invite us into is we take a look at our own story to put in right perspective what makes this valuable what makes this beautiful it's him he makes it valuable he makes it beautiful and so where's all this going right where's all this heading and I think the culmination of it is in verse 51 through 53, where Stephen, uh, man, kind of gets a little aggressive, but uh, it's a beautiful aggression. Again, it's not an aggression meant to curse them, but rather to invite them into repentance, to turning away from their, their idolatry, their misinterpretation of themselves, and to turn to the goodness of God. He says it like this in verse 51, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You were always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did, you, also, you do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, those whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels and yet have not kept it. He shows them that, man, everything you've clung to in your history doesn't serve you. And just like others in our past, in our culture, have rejected God, likewise, you have now become the murderer of the Messiah. What he wants them to see, it, this seems really hard and really aggressive, but, but I want you to see the underlying truth that's there. 
the underlying truth that is there for the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin for, that Stephen is talking to, and the underlying truth that's present for us. And that truth is that as we look back at our story, one of the realities that, that, that we're confronted with is that time after time, it is a snapshot of these moments of failure, this snapshot of these moments of mistakes, snapshots of shortcomings, snapshots, um, man, of, of, of pitfalls, of, of mistakes, of heartaches, times where we've contributed to the brokenness of the world, times where we have experienced the deep brokenness of the world. Yet what makes beautiful, and there are good things in there too, I, hear, I want you to hear me. There are moments where there's beautiful stuff, but the things that for many of us stand out the most are those, those moments of, of, of mistakes and hurt and pain. Yet what Stephen is pointing to is that those are not the things that dictate and define your life. Rather, it is the parallel, it is the, the, the parallel timeline, the parallel story of God's good grace and mercy going, you know what, that slip up, I paid for that. That mistake, I'm making that whole. Man, that failure, I've covered that through my cross and my death and my blood. Those mistakes I've made right through my righteous work on the cross on your behalf. It's that parallel timeline working uh, alongside of our lives that brings beauty, that brings wholeness, that brings fullness. We don't have to approach anyone with shame. We don't have to look at our stories with any type of embarrassment. Rather, we can celebrate and embrace even our humanity. Not saying that we would look and go, hey, how can I sin more? Right? But rather going, man, look at what, look at what God has made new. L look at the ashes that he's making into beautiful things. And I may not see it here. I may not see it in the next 10 years. I may not see it on this earth, but I promise you that I have a hope that goes beyond what's in front of me. I have a hope that's beyond what I can see through my story. My story is beautiful in its ups and in its downs because it has now been intersected. It is now run into. It's now combined and interwoven with his story. Let's go, Stephen. When we understand history correctly, his story, our story, when we understand redemptive history correctly, it shows us that Christ in his great grace has given us mercy on top of mercy and is calling us to, to experience the goodness that he desires to extend to us through the gospel. And so I, I want to end like this because I want to show you that, man, Stephen, um, Stephen didn't just talk the talk, man, he walked the walk. Uh, because it's easy for us right now to take a look at this and go like, well, what does this look like? What does it look like? Well, well, what I'm saying is that when we begin to understand our story in light of what God is doing in our lives, we have the ability to, to take a look at our circumstances, whether high or whether low, and to understand that the author of these circumstances, the author of this life, the author of what's happening in my heart and in my life is good, and therefore I can trust that what's happening it may not feel good, the experience may not be good, but you know what? I have, I have the knowledge that this portion of my story, even the hurtful part of it is good. It's, it's something in it is beautiful because the one who makes all things new and beautiful is the one who's authoring my story. Here's the, here's the example of what this looked like in Stephen's own life. I want to conclude today by simply reading the rest of this section, the rest of the text. In verse 54, it says, when they, the religious leaders, heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. 
Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the wit and the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he fell asleep. Imagine looking at your life. looking back at the brokenness of your life and going, you know what? That's so beautiful that even my biggest moment of suffering, for Stephen, it was the moment where he would encounter death. I trust that it is beautiful in God's hands. Just like that. If I'm being honest, friends, um, COVID has taken... Me, I think, blindsided sometimes. I don't realize, I think, my emotional response to it. I've, I've maybe stuffed it a little bit. It's been hard for me. Let me just say that. It's been hard for me as your pastor and as the church, like, like as, as planting refuge, uh, to be planting and then kind of get sideswiped by a pandemic of all things. It's been difficult. And there have been moments where hopelessness has crept in and gone, man, is this like you not wanting us to do this right now? Is this like, what is going on right now, God? But then I look back at my life, man. I look back at drug addiction and emptiness. I look back at, um, man, just deep-seated anger issues. I look back uh, at feelings of uh, loneliness. I look back at, at this emptiness that I was chasing after and asking, please come, please come give me something. And I look at that and go, but look where he saved me. Look where he made me new. The gift, the beautiful parts of that story, they seem so few and far between if you're me. Letting you know, man, if you're me, it seems so few and far between to try to see the beautiful points of my story. Yet the beauty of my story, of Josh's story, is not that those moments have had some type of learning experience to them. It was that God saw those moments in my lowest places, in my darkest places, and said, that guy right there, that guy is mine. That's what made those stories beautiful. That's why I can look at you and, and any one of you guys know that I can talk to you, man, about drug addiction. I can talk to you about anything that happened in my life because there's no shame, because Christ has taken it, because he has redeemed and restored me, because the beautiful parts of my story, I don't have to depend on my performance, but the way I got the beautiful gift of God himself was through the grace given to me at the cross. And now, as I walk before you, I don't walk as one uh, who's ashamed and guilty and covering myself, but I walk as one who has God with him, in him, walking with me through the hardship. And so I don't know what, what the end of COVID looks like, but I know that God's with me. I know that God's with you. 
I know that God's with us. I know that your story is beautiful. I know that my story is beautiful because our stories have intersected in the most beautiful way with the story of the Redeemer who is making all things new and taking the ugliness of our lives, the ashiness, the ash of our existence and turning them into something beautiful. That's how I'm able to look at my story and even in the midst of the ugliness go, you know what? That's for me. It's beautiful because he's made it beautiful. I had like a whole story to talk about, but, but what, I just, what I just said right now was not in my notes, but it was significantly better than what I wrote down. <laughs> but hey, what I, what I want to do is I, I want to give you an application point for this week because what I just said right, about my own life is something that I think all of us can benefit from, but we have to do the things necessary in order to, to, to understand what's happening. And what do I mean by that? I mean this that it takes time to understand and to look at our story and to see the mark of God in it. And so this week, what I want you to do is I want you to get a pen and paper, a laptop, your phone, I don't care, whatever it is that you use to write. And I want you to get away from from the noise for an hour or two. Get away from the noise, get away from the busyness, get away from... Uh, all the things that, are, that, are, that draw your attention away from Jesus. Ask your spouse to take care of the kids for an hour or two. Whatever you need to do, get on your own. And what I want you to do is I want you to write down your story. I want you to write down your story. I want you to start from the beginning. If you're me, four years old, I remember watching The Lion King. That's where I want you to start. Not The Lion King, but your version of that. Um, And I want you to write all the way up until where you are right now. And after you're done, I want you to go back and look at it. I want you to use these tools, these takeaways of of look for for where the the, the true gift is. Look look for the moments where you know, man, I I, I did not succeed right there. I did not, that was a shortcoming. but, But know and see that, man, it was God's grace that said, but that didn't stop me from loving you. Right, look at the entirety of it and look and go, man, and all of it is marked by the reality that he is with me. And then from there, I want you to take a look. I want you to take your life before God and, and invite him into it. Uh, pour out your heart before him, whatever it is. I, I want that to influence how you're seeing your life right now, whether it's in the pandemic, whether it's um, racial injustice, man, whether it is your own personal things going on, I want you to use these tools in order to redefine where you are right now, not by uh, re-examining and, and saying, oh, I, I did better here. No, I'm not giving yourself a pat on the back, but rather looking for the beautiful intersection of where God came in and made you new, where the beauty of his story intersected your story and my story. And I want you to bring that into where you are right now, no matter where you are. If you're in a great place, good. That means that all that stuff that you find, you should just be able to celebrate and thank God for. And when the day comes where good is not what's happening, then, man, you will have a story to look at and go, but look at the beauty of what God has done in my life. I want us to do that. Um, I want you to know before we, before we pray and finish up here that your story is beautiful. It's meaningful that God is doing something in you. He's doing something in me. He's doing something in this community. You were not brought here for no reason. 
You're a part of this church and this community because God desires to use your story and my story to make more beautiful stories. But we have to know the depth of our, uh, the beauty of our stories in order to get there, okay? Love you guys. Let's go ahead and pray. Then we're gonna go into a moment of worship and we'll come back to finish up in just a second. Father, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. Allow these takeaways today to guide us in how we interpret our story and what you're doing in our lives. We love you. We thank you. Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith. 